Welcome to the Teaching Middle School ELA Podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Mitchell and Jessica Kanata. If you're looking for ways to bring rigor and engagement to your middle school ELA classroom without sacrificing your nights and weekends, then this podcast is for you. Our goal is to provide you with your weekly dose of tips, tools, and inspiration so you can actually enjoy teaching again. We'll help you bring the fun and creativity to your ELA lessons so that your students master the standards and you can leave school when the bell rings. Get ready to be that teacher you've always wanted to be to do great work and thrive. Okay, so this is a very special recording for me because Holly, who is our guest today, is one of my dearest, closest friends, one of my favorite people in the entire world. And I constantly go to Holly for questions about my son, Will, who's now five. And I'm like, Holly, is this normal? Should he be doing this? Mm -hmm. And she's always so kind and compassionate and caring. And I'm just really excited for her to get to share all of her knowledge as a kindergarten, pre-K, early childhood educator with you, because, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about this episode beforehand. There's so much that is translatable from what Holly is doing with her four and five-year-olds in her classroom to what we can be doing with our students in middle school in our middle school ELA classroom. So welcome Holly to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And just so you guys know, Holly is from research and play on Instagram and her blog and all that stuff. So you can go find her. Um, but she, like I mentioned, was a kindergarten teacher an instructional coach. Now she's a TK teacher and she is very, very well-versed in classroom design and engaging activities for students, information on play-based learning. I mean, the name of her brand is research and play. And I just love that so much because I think we lose sight of that as students get older and it is still necessary that feeds into their inner child. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. So anyways, Holly, let's dive in. Our first topic for today is going to be specifically about classroom space. So I know that this is something that you're really passionate about. Can you, first of all, give us kind of a foundational understanding of your philosophy to the classroom space? Right. So I could talk about this for a long time because it's something that you said I am passionate about. I feel like there are so many things that we do as teachers within our classrooms that can sink or float based on how we have set up the classroom space. And maybe some people are thinking, really, the physical space is that important? But yes, absolutely is. So my background um, is really rooted in Reggio. Um, I spent a lot of time learning about that as a pre-service teacher. And so as soon as I got my first classroom, it's something that I have implemented. And this is my 12th year of teaching. In a Reggio room or in any room that is sort of Reggio inspired, the environment is considered the third teacher. And so when you are setting up the physical space of your classroom, you are really considering what the room, the layout, the colors, the lighting, the materials can all do to benefit your students. And your students are the key words there. Um, A lot of times I think we might focus a little bit on ourselves as teachers and what we want in our rooms and things that we like and we enjoy and how it can serve us. And we definitely need things in place to keep ourselves organized and to keep us going as teachers. But the space is there for the kids, whether your kids are four or 14. So 
if you are creating and designing, that's the word that I like to use. You're not setting up a classroom. You're truly designing it. Um, you're thinking about every single thing in terms of what your particular students need. Mm, I love looking at it as the classroom, as the third teacher. Mm-hmm. How powerful is that? Because when we put that hat on, we start to look at everything differently, right? Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that, you know, as you're doing this for your classroom and you're designing your spaces. And if you guys want to get an idea of what Holly does with her spaces, just go follow her on Instagram. I just love seeing your classroom. And when I see other classrooms that look like yours, mm-hmm. I always comment. I'm like, oh my goodness, I just love what you're doing with your classroom because of these reasons. And so can you share with us like some questions that you might ask yourself as you're designing your space or some things that might come up for you that then our middle school ELA teachers can sit down and think about as well? Right. So no matter what age you teach, even though the materials in your room might be very different, right? Like I teach four-year-olds this year and they are going to need some different things than a 12 or 13-year-old needs. However, it's still a room where they go to learn. That's the very premise of a classroom. So while they're in there, I think some questions to ask yourself as you are setting up that space and designing it early in the year or at any time of the year. I first did this big mindset shift in like March of one school year. It can happen at any time. Ask yourself, how does this space, and when I say this space, look at one space in your classroom. How does this space serve my students? And so you might be looking at one corner of the room that you currently have some kind of organization system or a table or something hanging on the wall, but just look at that space and ask yourself, how does this space serve my students? Not do they ever come sit over here or maybe they look at that poster sometimes, but when they're in that area, how are they growing? How is it helping their learning? How is it helping them to become collaborative? What verbs, the verbs that you want your students to be doing, growing, learning, collaborating, talking, thinking, making, how's that one spot in your classroom serving them with that? And if it's not, then you can redesign it. And so I go around my room early in the year and I look at different areas and I ask myself, what do I want my students doing in this space and how is this space serving them? And if I can't come up with a very good answer, then I leave it blank. I don't put up my own stuff. I don't fill it with something. I just leave it blank. And then when the students come and I see what they need and I see what we do or do not have, then I can fill in that space. And I think that that's another key component of designing your space. No matter what age you teach, it's okay to leave some areas blank and let your students fill it in. You know, in early childhood rooms, we love to decorate the rooms with children's artwork and it looks really beautiful that way. But in a middle school classroom, in an ELA room, what could go up on the walls that benefit your students after your students are there? If you have a big bulletin board that you typically display something on, let the students tell you what they need on that bulletin board. It might not be what you think. So. I think asking yourself some questions through the design process and being okay with just leaving things alone is really important. Oh my gosh. You just said so many things that I just want to continue talking about because it's so, so powerful and worth repeating. I mean, 
I love the questions that you said, how is this space serving my students? How is this helping them become thinkers or learners or talker, discussers, whatever it might be? You know, I'm thinking back as you're talking about, I'm thinking about all my different classrooms and all of the different spaces that I've created over the years. And some of those little spots in my classroom, I'm like, that served no purpose. Mm -hmm. And I love that you just gave us permission to ask ourselves these questions. And if it doesn't serve any sort of purpose toward being that kind of third teacher for our students, that we have permission to leave it blank, mm -hmm. that it's okay. You know, I think we have so much pressure on ourselves as teachers, like, oh, look at this classroom, look at that classroom, or I want a space that looks like that. And it's kind of like how we teach our teachers when we're lesson planning, we sit down and think about, what is our intention behind this? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this with our students in our classroom? Same thing with our spaces. Why are we bringing this particular part of our classroom? Um, why are we designing it in this particular way? So can you give me like a specific example from TK, kindergarten, and perhaps we can translate it to, to middle school for our teachers. What is in your classroom a student-focused space look like? So it's great. We have these questions that you gave us, which I love awesome prompts. And then to put it into practice, like I'm trying to think, okay, what is a collaborative space look like? What does that look like for you guys? And then we can maybe talk about what that looks like for middle school. For sure. So I can think back to some areas of my former classrooms as well. And even though I am sort of grounded in this work, I've definitely had years where I didn't dive very deep into it. And I could definitely see how the room was serving me a little bit more than it was serving my students. Um, there was one area in particular in my former classroom where it was the teacher area. And I literally called it the teacher area. And I'm sure some of your listeners have this area because it's so normal to have in a classroom. It's where your desk is and maybe where your filing cabinet is and where, in, where your drawers are, where you have all your things organized behind you. That's your little teacher spot. And I had that spot and it took up so much space in the room. And I thought, yeah, obviously I need an organization system for myself. There's a lot of paperwork and things that I need to collect and organize. But I looked at that spot as a whole and I thought, what is it telling my students that this entire area of our classroom is off limits to them? Mm. It's telling them that I'm separate from you. You're here to learn from me. You say over there and I'm going to go here. And I didn't like that message. I didn't like the way that felt. And perhaps I was thinking too deep. Maybe a five-year-old wasn't catching onto that message, but I could see how maybe a preteen could catch that message. You know, we have to make sure that every area of our room is inviting for children. And so what I ended up doing was a little unorthodox, but I took out my teacher desk. And I know some people may or may not be allowed to do that, actually. Um, but I took out a lot of the things that were in and around my desk area. And I had open floor space, floor space then for my students. And so I got some organizers that put their materials in it, not my paperwork. And I took out my big, huge filing cabinet and I just got rid of it. I thought to myself, everything that I need really could either be condensed into like one of those little file um, drawer things mm -hmm. you know, that the hanging file folders go in and I can just shove that under my desk or it's digital. I don't need all these printed copies of all this stuff. And that was actually really hard to do, but 
when my students came back and they saw that, because I did this during the school year, they were like, this is for us now to hear kids say that. And I know that my students are a lot, lot younger than students of your listeners, but to hear them think like, this is for me now was so powerful. And I think that's a good lesson for anyone who teaches upper grades, middle or high school, make sure that the kids know that it's for them. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can't take away all of that furniture, like we just said, but what can you do to open up an area and make it be more for them? If you can't totally get rid of your teacher desk or space, how can you bring another chair over and then your desk becomes a conferencing area mm. when kids are ready to conference with you? Or you can have a little subset of your desk where you can have a kid come sit with you if they're having a hard time or just get coached by you or let them know that they're welcome into that area. And I think that's just a good message that spreads to your whole room. Yeah. As you were just saying this, I was thinking, okay, what would this actually look like for me in middle school? And all of a sudden I'm like, what's actually in my desk? A whole lot of nothing that I don't actually use. You know, if it really came down to it, what are my essentials that I would absolutely need to be a successful teacher? And it's really not that much stuff, quite frankly. And so how cool and powerful would it be then for our students if we got rid of our teacher desk or made a smaller version of it, or even like what you're saying, where I now become so much more physically approachable that you can come talk to me about your problems, that you can come talk to me about something that you need help with with your homework or that, hey, I'm here as a part of this collaborative learning experience with you. Yes, I'm going to facilitate your learning, but I'm not standing up here old school in front of the classroom giving you all the information and you're just taking a test on it, right? It becomes this like mutual collaborative thing that we are doing together. And that message that you're sending How cool for your five-year-olds to walk in and be like, this is for us. I bet you middle school students would say that same darn thing if they came in and saw that same exact thing in your classroom, that there are two chairs next to each other that, hey, this is for us. Mm -hmm. We're in this together. I love that so much. Yeah. So powerful. Talk to me about, yeah, I actually saw something on your Instagram this year where I think it was like a space or something you were doing with your students with your space, like wasn't working And it was like the first week of school and you came back and you're like, I don't know why I didn't. Do you know what I'm talking about? Kind of like leading into what I'm trying to get at is the trial and error concept of Mm -hmm. co-creating this space with our students. Can you speak into that a little bit? For sure. So um, when you are shifting into a student-focused co-created space, that co-creation piece can be really daunting at first. What happened to me earlier this year is I actually went a little too far over that line and it was not necessarily co-created. I didn't do enough facilitating. I just sort of let my students who are four this year take a little too much of the lead and we were missing some structure. So I had to come back in and I had to implement a voice levels chart that we created and hung up. Um, a jar with their name so that we could actually take turns pulling it out. And then I've also put in a chime to ring for voice levels and a couple other small things. But I think the trial and error mindset is really important. Nothing in your classroom, and I think this is a big message for new teachers. I think veteran teachers probably have just learned this. Nothing in your classroom has to be 
finished and ready to go on day one of school at all. Like you could have an entire blank wall. You can have boxes you haven't unpacked in the corner. It doesn't matter because what matters is once your students are there with you, you are letting them know this space is for you and I want it to work for you. So let me know what would help you in this space. Ask your students questions. For me with the voice levels chart, it sort of went beyond. My students weren't able to regulate their voice levels yet. It was getting really loud and they were noticing. It's really loud when we're trying to read this book, Miss Hodges, or that was really loud when they were playing over there. And I said, you know, there's something we can actually make. Come to the rug and sit down with me. And then we made the voice levels chart. Ask your students what they need. They'll sometimes feel shy to tell you. And so if you give them that space to say, hey, what do you think is missing from our room? That would really help you. Later in the year, a really powerful thing to do is um, have your kids look around the room and say, what's not helping you in this space anymore? What can we take down? And they might think, are, is, are, are you serious? But say, yeah, does this chart that we made back in November, is that helping you anymore? Should we take it down? Yeah, let's take it down. Hmm. Um, really involve your students and know that it's all editable <laughs> all the time. Everything's at your whole classroom is editable. You do not have to have anything finished, hung up, beautified, perfected. It's all about trial and error. You may have thought, I'm doing this whole design and I've got this whole space created. They're going to love coming to sit over at this table because I have all of these things ready for them. And then kids never go over that, mm. that table and, or to that area or that place you spent time setting up for them. And it's kind of like a gut punch, like, man, really wanted that to work because on so-and-so's Instagram, they do that. Or I, I saw that on Pinterest and it looked really cool. It's not for these students. Scrap yeah. it. Ask yeah. them what they need there. So that's kind of tricky sometimes too, with the influence of social media, you might try to implement things that you see but you really need to get your students input. And if they don't need it or want it, then you don't have to have it. Yeah. I feel like that needs to be a post-it note that we write on somewhere right next to us and put on our computer. Like everything is editable. Mm -hmm. You know, you have permission to make changes and to make shifts. And I just love that because I think a lot of times we get stuck in, well, I've already set it up. I can't make a change, like blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I just love that. Everything is editable. What a powerful takeaway. Okay. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So we talked a lot about classroom space. We, I could keep talking about forever and ever, and it mm -hmm. makes me want to go back to the classroom and have a classroom again. So I can do this with students and co-create a space with students. Um, we're going to switch gears and talk more now about hands-on inquiry-based learning experiences. So I know this from Will, my five-year-old who is in preschool still, we sent him for next year of preschool all he does is use his hands to learn and to manipulate and to do certain things. Why do you think this kind of starts to fall to the wayside as students get older? And why is it important for them to continue to learn, perhaps in the same way that your four and five-year-olds are? I see it happen so young, honestly. I one year was tutoring third graders after school and they would come to my kindergarten classroom and every day they would see the Play-Doh and would say, oh, can we play with Play-Doh? And I had this like multiplication curriculum I had to follow and it was pretty direct. And I was like, oh, we just won't have time today. So at the very end, I was like, 
guess what? Today we're going to practice with Play-Doh. And they were so excited and they were almost at the end of third grade. So some of them were nine and you think nine is sounds so young, but they had already lost that hands-on component, the play-based component of their learning. I think it's important, even though it sounds like how in the world can I do this? Like once they leave elementary school, it's so important to find any kind of way where students are working with their hands to include that in their learning. Not every person, and we know this, the, the learning modalities are a little outdated. However, there is a lesson to learn that not every person learns the same way, obviously. Not every person learns or enjoys working on a computer or a paper pencil or just looking at a paper book in hand. There are so many other ways that we can incorporate hands-on learning. And it doesn't have to look like for preteens and teenagers what it does for a child, right? It doesn't have to look like Play-Doh and blocks. It can look like giving them options by creating videos, doing stop motion projects, and then writing about it. There's so many things that they could be doing and working with their hands that can benefit them. And even if you really extrapolate that out and look in their career, which what middle schooler knows what they're going to be when they grow up, right? But some might, or whatever they explore in middle school could delve, like they can delve into that and that can become an interest that they can explore later on. There are so many careers where you are working with your hands all the time. You're being creative. It really fosters creative thinking. It fosters collaboration because typically you're doing that with other people Mm -hmm. and it just allows you to experience your learning in a way that is likely a little more meaningful and we'll stick with you for a little bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you're saying all of this, I'm thinking about, you know, we get, I think it's easy for us sometimes to just do the worksheet, you know, with all the things that we've got coming our way as teachers, it becomes like, okay, I got to teach this grammar lesson on verbals. Let's just get this worksheet done, get it over with. Let's hit the standard and move on. And what we've done is we've figured out a way in certain areas of ELA of how do we make this physical with their hands? Like, how do we get this to be a game or some sort of manipulative interactive activity? We see it often in math. Like I know when I taught fifth grade math, we had like all the little math manipulatives. Um, We don't see it that often in ELA. And we really don't see it that often when we get to middle school. And so one of the things that we have with our grammar programs is manipulatives of grammar. And so it's like, we are working with grammar skills through some sort of board game where students have cards and things like that. So they're actually playing and physically touching things as opposed to writing stuff on a piece of paper. Same thing when we're looking at an essay. One of the things that we'll do with our students is we'll give them uh, strips of all of the sentences from the essay and they have to move the strips around into the order in which the essay is supposed to be written. And they'll you know, justify why they put this sentence here or that sentence there. So it is high level. We're not playing with Play-Doh, but we're using our hands just in a different way. So I think it's fun, especially too, as a teacher to be given this permission to have this kind of different look of, okay, how could I get my students to use their hands with this? Or how could I get them to do something that's a little bit more interactive? Like you're talking about a music video project. That's something I always did with my students. They'd get in groups. They'd create a music video that went to Julius Caesar or Othello. It was always associated with Shakespeare for me. And they'd produce this incredible product at the end where they're working with computers. Some of them are playing drums. Some of them are singing, They have whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I bet you a million bucks, like they are going to remember mm-hmm. 
-hmm. that they did that particular activity in seventh and eighth grade with me. They are not going to remember the worksheet that we did, you know, the other day in class, right? It makes a huge difference for our students. It really does. I can remember as a student, freshman year of high school, we were practicing um, Romeo and Juliet and we played a game where some lines from the play were written on the board and we had like relay races back and forth where we had to match the line with the character who said it. Simple. I'm sure it did not take a lot of time for that teacher to prep that. And I remember that still, and that was years and years ago. So mm-hmm. I think when you think about inquiry-based or project-based learning, it doesn't have to be this huge, grandiose thing. Mm-hmm. It can be, you can really dive in and take your students' interest and run with it and create incredible projects. But just in your daily practice and your daily lessons, you can take little things and just make them a little more interactive. Mm-hmm. That is memorable for kids. Yeah. And even asking our students, hey, what do you think? How could we take this boring worksheet and do something different with it? You know, imagine if we flipped the script and asked our students that, what would their response be? Like, Mrs. Mitchell, have you lost your mind? Right. First of all, they're going to be like, their interest is going to be peaked. But then also, who knows what they're going to tell us? Kind of the same thing with co creating the space with them asking them, mm-hmm. how can we work through your learning together, right? We're here for a common goal and that is your growth. And you get to be a part of that with me. Um, mm-hmm. so I love that. So classroom design being super intentional. Number two is hands-on inquiry-based learning experiences, something you do all the time in your early childhood education classrooms that we slowly start to lose as students get older, but that is so beneficial for them that we get to bring back in. And then number three that I wanted to talk about with you is, you know, how can literacy-based experiences that you do, and this is perfect, right, for ELA, that you do in pre-K and K and early childhood, how can those types of experiences that you provide for your younger students translate to us? Like how, how do we make sure that we don't forget like what is at the heart of what we're doing? Because you said something really powerful that I'd actually like for you to speak into first before you answer that question of the standards in kindergarten mm-hmm. and then the standards in eighth grade. So can you speak into what you said before we started recording and then kind of answer the question that I had? Right, so we were just talking about how maybe as a middle school teacher you're thinking, what in the world could a kindergarten teacher or TK teacher, like how could we work together to figure out how to produce a child who is a writer, that child starts in my class and it's my job. Well, when I was a kinder teacher to teach the kindergarten writing standards. And if you follow common core or whatever your state uses, those kinder standards then become first grade and they get built upon and second grade and they get built upon. And we know this, right? It's a continuum. So if we're thinking in terms of writing, I am starting off a five-year-old in becoming a writer And all of those standards that they learn all the way through 12th grade is building upon what we started. And that's crazy to think about. But if you ever get the opportunity to do vertical planning, I highly encourage you to vertical plan with as far up or as far down as you can get with. It might be tricky in middle school, but if you're ever with an elementary teacher, have them pull out their standards and just talk about it. It's mind blowing to see like, oh my gosh, I see how when they're doing that as an 11-year-old, how it started when they were five, Mm. which is super powerful. And so I think that when you're thinking about what could I learn from an early childhood educator regarding um, these literacy-based experiences, 
one thing that we do when, of course, we're teaching the three big genres of writing, of course, we're teaching our standards is incorporate a ton of student choice. Because if you have your own children or you have taught a younger grade before, sometimes getting children to write is like pulling teeth. And I have <laughs> I to love be the honest. Way you say it with such a sweet, kind voice. <laughs> well, you know, um, it's not pleasant sometimes. And writing was actually my least favorite subject to teach. Here I am on a writing podcast in ELA. <laughs> but it, it was really hard until I realized that a five turning six-year-old is not going to produce writing maybe in the way that I think they should. What if I give them a little more choice? Let me see what they can produce. And let me tell you, when I like left my old units and my old things in the past that I had them writing about these like preset topics, when I let that go and I said, okay, opinion writing is huge in kindergarten. I used to have them write about their favorite things and that gets very boring, very quick. What else could we write about with their opinion? We talked about what opinions meant and we had some teaching into that concept and then putting writing out to your students as a choice. If you were able to write about animals, what would you say is the coolest animal? Why would you say that? You know, like little topics if they're really interested in animals and that can launch into a whole writing project for them. They can debate with each other on that. They can defend their writing. It's really cool. But I had to watch my students and see what they were interested in. And I had to keep it pretty Mm open-ended. I had to stop pulling those same um, writing prompts out of my drawer that I kept using. And I had to really give them a lot more choice. Mm. I love that. You know, I think sometimes in middle school, we're like, yes, we want to give students choice and we have to teach all of these specific standards. Right. Um, and so going along with what you're saying is like, sometimes like, let's forget what we've always done Mm -hmm. and let's try something different and just see what happens. Right. Everything is editable. (laughs) So we can always go back. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just thinking about how, you know, when we're doing, for example, we're studying Romeo and Juliet. We're just going to stay on Shakespeare because that's where we are. We're studying Romeo and Juliet. And I want my students to write a response to literature at the end, right? This is all going to be about reading for literature standards, writing standards, claims, evidence, justification, all that stuff, which is basically what you're talking about in kindergarten with your opinion writing, with defending their position, right? The same exact thing, just at a much higher level. And we can give our students choice by giving them five different essay prompts, you know? which we can even ask them, which character was your favorite and why? Like, I love that, you know, talking about the animals. And so I think that there are opportunities for us to be able to provoke that interest in our students in certain types of writing, especially when we're talking about persuasive, argumentative, Mm -hmm. even informational text writing. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll give our students a piece, an informational text piece and tell them to write about it. Well, what if we gave them a topic in informational text and they got to go research which particular piece they wanted to write about? Mm -hmm. So we're still hitting on those same exact standards that we have to, we get to, but we're doing it through a different lens that has much more student choice, like what you're particularly talking about in this instance. Right. And I think just listening to you talk, knowing how it can build. I think what you teach your members and other people who 
come to you for writing resources, it's so crucial because you have to teach students a structure. One thing that is going to halt a lot of my younger students from trying a skill is they lack the structure for how to do it. They can pick, they can do all of this choice and options and stuff, but if I haven't given them a structure to follow, it's very daunting and it's scary. And so teaching that very explicit structure actually gives students the opportunity to explore choice. And I that, that can be said for anything, not even just writing, but like when your classroom management feels like it's falling to pieces, think about the actual structures you have in place. And when you spend time building those structures early on, then you can do a lot of fun things because those structures are in place. And if something starts getting a little wonky, you can come back to the structures. Mm. And so I think it's not an either or it's a first, then Mm. first build the structures in, then give them more choice, then give them fun projects and hands-on learning experiences. But you can't do that until you have that structure. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that's like anything in life, you Mm -hmm. know, we, we get to have structures in place to help us grow and have that foundation. I mean, I'm even thinking about basic cooking principles. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have certain structures in cooking then to be able to explore what you can do beyond, right? Those like kind of foundational things with, I'm just talking about like main ingredients, onions, garlic, salt, right? There are certain things. Same thing with with running a business. Mm-hmm. You have to have structures, processes, systems in place in order to flourish, in order to allow for that creativity same exact thing with our students. So Holly, I'm going to ask you one more question. And before we go though, I want to, before I ask you that question, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast episode. I really love talking about this and I hope that our teachers love listening to it because there's so much value in what you're sharing and what you're saying. And even though this is going to air, you know, not at the beginning of the year, when we're talking about designing our classroom space. How powerful is it that you made the shift in March, right? Mm-hmm. That gives anyone the, the kind of permission to make a change now, tomorrow, this week, whatever it might be, whenever you're listening to this episode. So I just want to say thank you, first of all, so much for, for coming on. Um, so last question that I have for you, just to wrap everything up, you know, as an early childhood educator, you get to see our students like in their infancy almost, right? As students in classrooms, if there's one thing that you would want a middle school English teacher or just a middle school teacher to know about what you do and thinking about your students for the future and how you are working hard to make sure that they are set up for the ultimate success when they get to eighth grade. What is one thing that you wish an eighth grade teacher would know about the work that you're doing that would benefit both us and you in the classrooms? So talking about really that full vertical planning and vertical alignment, right? Going from K, pre-K all the way up to eighth grade. That's a big one. And honestly, like it could make me a little emotional thinking about that because my answer is remember that they're kids. And at the end of the day, they are children who want to feel safe, who want to feel loved and who want to be seen. And no matter what kind of teacher you are, no matter if you are a high school calculus teacher, they are somebody's child They were a little five-year-old in kindergarten who came up and gave their little teacher side hugs and said, I love you, and accidentally called us mom. They were that. And so 
don't force them to grow up so fast. I know that we want them to be fiercely independent. We want them to stand up for themselves. We want them to advocate. We want them to learn how to be members of this world, but protect them while you can and hold them close. And I know maybe as a middle school teacher, you're not as used to doing that as we are in the lower grades, but remember there's still kids on the inside. And so you might have these big, big things you have to teach and these big, hard topics and concepts, but play to their inner child because it's still in there and it still really needs to be fostered. I love that. There's still kids. That's so true. So true. Well, thank you so much, Holly. Where can our listeners find you? Where can they learn more about you? I know you have um, like a course that you talk all about classroom design space that I've actually gone through that I loved so much. So where can we find all of the information about who you are and what you do? For sure. So um, like Caitlin mentioned earlier, you can find me on Instagram at research and play. Um, I post there almost daily, just some little insights into our classroom. Um, A lot of deeper topics are covered on my website, research-and-play.com. And that's where you will find out when our next enrollment will be for the research-based space, which is the course that I offer to teach you how to be a design thinker in terms of classrooms. So we have seven steps to design thinking that we'll go through. We have different modules. And then at the end, hopefully you'll feel very equipped to look at your classroom now and all of your classrooms in the future through the lens of design thinking. So enrollment will open on that later this school year. So see, it doesn't have to happen at the very beginning of the year. It can happen (laughs) at any time, um, but you can find more there. I love it. Thank you so much, Holly. Thank you guys so much for listening and definitely let us know if you've listened on social media, tag us both um, and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Have a great rest of your week, you guys, and we'll see you next week on the podcast. Bye everyone.